for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. It's time to switch on today's News Talk Radio. Very entertaining. TNT. Welcome back to the fourth and final hour of this new show on Saturday afternoons here. Tentatively titled The Jason Olborn Show. Maybe we can come up with something a little bit more imaginative, but it gives me an excuse to talk to you for a very long period of time, but introduce some incredible guests. And we've had some terrific guests on the show today and none more than my next one. Peter Richards is ex-military, Australian ex-military. And in his job, you could probably compare it to being captain of the Australian cricket team. All the hard work is done on the field but more in preparation off the field and in serving his country has served it exemplary. It's uh, quite incredible that uh, Peter and I have become friends and also colleagues in this crazy business of understanding what's going on in a world that's being remodelled before our eyes. And you can bet that when Peter started in this business, it's not how it is there. Peter Richards, welcome back to TNT Radio. Thanks for having me, Jason. I really appreciate it, mate. Look, I appreciate your time today and uh, quite incredible what we've been watching over just the last couple of years and how it seems to be remodelling. But given, um, obviously, background in in military and you're watching the world at the moment, I thought it would be really, really good to get an update of how you're seeing things play out. Um, Obviously, we've got Israel Hamas, we've got uh, Russia, Ukraine, we've got the constant uh, threat of something happening in China that seems to be almost manufactured given the pressure from AUKUS to protect the uh, the Indo-Pacific region. We have two countries outside of that region telling Australia what to do and making China the boogeyman in, in what's going on. But um, circle back, what you're seeing now in, let's start, if we start with Ukraine and Russia, It's we talked about this a long time ago and all of it's entirely predictable. Why is it that the West couldn't see what was so bleeding obvious? Well, it's it's following the, the classic path of a, a proxy war, uh, essentially. Uh, you're looking at um, a power struggle between NATO and Russia. Now, Russia had formally warned NATO not to uh, encroach on its borders, uh, essentially asking Ukraine to become a part of NATO, Lithuania, so on and f- so forth, most of the um, Eastern Bloc countries, um, some some that have turned over to, uh, the, to uh, the NATO bloc as such, um, have, has become increasingly worrying for Russia. Now, Russia is a sovereign state by all, by all stretch of the imagination, and it had to give up a lot after the Iron Curtain came down. So really, when you look at Putin and you look at Putin's um, background, which was Russian military, KGB, uh, he's essentially looking at Russia and, and trying to pr- pr- provide protectionism for, for Russia's uh, um, sovereignty. Uh, especially when it comes to energy generation, which a lot of this is now sort of hinging on, especially after uh, the um, second pipeline, gas pipeline to Europe was blowing up. And uh, I, I'll put my military brain on there and I know exactly who was responsible for that. And, and uh, you know, to say that Ukraine was responsible for it, they just didn't have the, the capability to do that. It's funny how the US was doing military exercises in that area. Um about a month beforehand, before that occurred. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little sceptical um, of it all. And it's traditionally, it's a proxy war. 
Mm, it's it, it's interesting. If we go back to um to the to the the pipeline, and of course you had Biden come out and give that warning that if if it was to open that they'll get rid of it, and you had Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, kind of going along and supporting it, and now Germany's paying a heavy price for not being able to access um a natural gas into the country, um uh, and, and are really really struggling. And of course, at the same time, you've got Germany still trying to prop up NATO. Uh, trying to get the other nations involved. It just seems like Germany is being um, uh, in some way, a bit like Australia with AUKUS, someone is pulling the strings of Germany and Schultz just seems to go on with it. Why is it that 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 Germany is not serving Germany's interests first and they're getting caught up in this globalist plan? Is, does that mean that they're part of this big globalist plan and, and, and have to collapse itself a bit like we expect the US to have to collapse for the globalisation plan of a one world government to be introduced? Well, I mean, you've only got to look at where the leader of the World Economic Forum actually comes from. <laughs> that's that. That's enough said right there. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, uh, you're looking at Germany hadn't been spending um, its GDP to, to uh, provide, even though it's one of the biggest economic powers within uh, the EU, hadn't been providing um, or pulling its weight with respect to NATO. Um, and Trump brought this out when he was in power as a president. And essentially said to Germany, you know, stump up the stump up the money for uh, military capability. You're not doing it, and you're certainly not providing it. And so we we'll, we will stop providing it. Now, whether that was forcing Germany into a corner or not, we don't know. But realistically, uh, Germany has a hangover from World War Two. Um, there has always been a left leaning power in Germany since World War Two, uh, and for Germany to rearm sends too many echoes um, back from World War II, essentially. But now you're looking at a party in Germany that's that's gained a lot of popularity in the right side of, of politics. Uh, and essentially, they're looking at um, how they're going to defend themselves, especially with the EU, the way it is at the moment. And it's very fractured. At the end of the day, I, I don't see NATO as a military power. You know, on paper, yes, but in practice, no, there's way too many cultures and way too many self-interests. And Poland has shown that just recently as well, which obviously borders with Germany. Mm. That's right. And we only yesterday there was reporting from Mark Espers, a former Defence Secretary under the Trump administration, saying that Trump will pull out of NATO uh, and, and that'll be the first part of it. Now, if that's the case, is that the end of NATO if the US was to pull out? Um, I would say that it would probably uh, become another beast for another word um the eu i believe uh, as as in its current form is finished uh it's it's essentially going backwards military power was the only way you're going to maintain power is you've got to keep military power there's no two ways about it you can't be a sovereign nation and not have been able to defend your own borders now poland is very very worried about that right now and they've actually um said that they will not um have weapons coming through the Polish, uh, Polish area for Ukraine. And they've actually put quite steep stipulations on that. Um, really, at the end of the day, Poland doesn't want to be sitting there and looking as, as a part of NATO's grand plan of increasing its power. Now, who's behind that? Well, we've had this conversation before, mate. I mean, who's the five biggest arms dealers in the world? It's the five permanent UN security members. I mean, it's, a, it's the biggest self-licking ice cream going. So... You know, Russia's got its own interests with energy. Um, it certainly doesn't want to be dictated to by the World Economic Forum. Um, the EU is trying to push its 
agenda and it's pushing it by the World Economic Forum. When you look at the EU, that was the perfect map of or trial formation for military and for uh, uh, financial and monetary uh, type governance, where it was going to be basically what the what the World Economic Forum would would uh, mould its global um, approach on. For a lot of for a lot of reasons, the EU personally, I think, has failed, and I think the World Economic Forum knows that. And now they're in a, they're in um, damage control. Yeah, th- th- this is the thing, isn't it? Because what we've seen was predictable, as we said all along. You've got Ukraine begging for money every day. You've got the US Congress now <clears throat> resisting Joe Biden's um, begging for money. Um, you've got European nations pulling out and restricting and, and making excuses now. Uh, France making excuses, other countries, Germany, obviously not knowing which way to play it, Poland, um, uh, um, Hungary, of course, going the other way. Uh, very interesting that if you've got a split and it's pretty clear split and the blank check can only go so far before everyone's broke and Zelensky somehow in the middle has lost his luster uh, completely and it's just a matter of time. But, of course, it's been reported and um, uh, very widely that the US knows that they can't win the war there. So how long do they play this out or do they have to play it out and hope that if they get defeated it becomes Trump's problem? Well, have a look at historic examples. Russia and Afghanistan is a good example uh, where they had worked out that they were going to die by a thousand, a thousand deaths. And it really, the US was running a proxy war against Russia at that point um, via the CIA and via the Pakistani ISI at the time and importing weapons across that would actually give the Russian uh, military a very hard time in the hands of the Mujahideen uh, mm-hmm. at that time. And the Stinger missiles come to, uh, come to play there. They became a... Um, absolutely key weapon against Russian air power at, at that time in Afghanistan. Now, when you look at the Javelin missiles, which were given over to uh, Ukrainians, that gave uh, Russia very much a, a check because they never had a weapon system like that. But since that weapon system has been deployed in Ukraine, funnily enough, the Russians have reverse engineered some of the captured weapon systems and now we've got uh, weapon systems that are capable, and China is also obviously reverse engineering those. So you've got the ability now of a javelin-type weapon system being made by Russia and or China. Um, and when I was personally in Afghanistan, um, Iraq and those sort of places, uh, I had weapons from China being fired at me multiple times. So uh, China is not adverse to making weapons and certainly not putting them on the market. And a lot of those weapons that went to the Ukraine that have been captured or went through, uh, let's say, shadowy black market dealers in the Ukrainian uh, (laughs) army, for a better word, Um, some of those weapons have turned up in Israel, funnily enough, and in the Gaza. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's got very much a quagmire added to it. And I think the US has now realised that uh, they've bitten off a little bit more than they can chew, like Russia did with Afghanistan. Um, and certainly um, Iran now being in the mix because a lot of Iranian weapons have gone via the Russians as well. And the Iranians are very, very much uh, leading the charge when it comes to um, uh, drone-type technology. Interesting. Now, well, I, just, I just want to ask you this this question about um, uh, 
military and, and, and shells, and I was reading some stories and doing some research on just the cost of weaponry. A 155 millimeter, is that a shell, uh, some sort of artillery shell? Does that ring a bell to you, the, a 155? Yeah. Now, so, yeah, but that 155, that can come, that can come in many, uh, many forms um, and many types of uh, artillery type shells from your, you can actually have smart bombs in a 155 that can be fired from a, from a, um, either a, self-propelled artillery weapon or a um, traditional artillery weapon. Uh, you can have copperhead rounds, uh, which are designed to uh, defeat armour. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of different variants. So, so the reason I brought that up was that um, in this particular story, it, there was a complaint that the cost of weapons had gone up and that the particular 155mm shell that they were trying to get into Ukraine and Ukraine had won, wanted something like two or 300,000 of these had gone from $2,000 each to $3,500 each. And instantly my mathematical brain goes out of sync and I'm, and I'm thinking for one type of shell, and obviously there's multiple types of them, you're looking at an investment of in the vicinity of hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions of dollars for just one type. And you just realise, as you said, the top five uh, countries there are, uh, are, are running, are calling the shots, are also benefiting from the production of it. It's the magnitude in, in war, the price of war, that you wonder why do we even bother worrying about, wondering, worrying about domestic economics when we can spend billions upon billions and now into the trillions to fund these ever, everlasting wars? Well, I go back and I'm very much a student of history when it comes to this, but uh, President Eisenhower uh, was was essentially around during the Korean War, um, and he was obviously a great general during World War Two. Uh, he actually said it. He said, "Beware of the industrial military complex." When he left, when he left power, now he said that for a very, very good reason. There is money to be made out of war, and you think about how many wars and proxy wars that we've fought, including. Uh, up until now, the global war on terror, Ukraine, Israel, uh, various different, you know, Viet going back as far as Vietnam and Korea, uh, people have got very, very wealthy off uh, proxy wars and also wars being fought um, by, you know, less than nation states. Now, when you look at the global war on terror, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan and the Americans left billions and billions and billions of dollars in weapons systems behind. Now, to the companies that are making those, <laughs> they've got who uh, they've got they've already been bought and paid for by the U.S. citizens. Now mm -hmm. those weapons systems have got to be remade, and they're going to be charging the uh, U.S. Web, um, U.S. Uh, taxpayers again to reproduce those weapon systems. Were some of them obsolete? Yes, they were and some of them weren't going to be used again, we're probably going to be put out of service. So there are people that are sitting there um, as the bean counters within defence, um, and it doesn't matter what nation you're talking about, and they're, they're looking at what best bang for buck they're going to get. Now, the Ukrainians obviously have fired off a lot of shells. How many of those shells have actually been fired? I'd actually ask the question. And how many have actually gone elsewhere mm -hmm. uh, is, is probably another question, but I can't answer that. Yeah, look, that's um, yeah, very, very powerful and, and important questions to ask. In a moment, we're going to take a break, Pete, but when we come back, I want to talk about, obviously, we want to go and talk about Israel, but before we get there, I, I want to talk about the experience on the ground in Afghanistan uh, and, and to set the scene and describe 
perhaps your experience or, or others that you know in terms of dealing with terrorism and also dealing with um, child soldiers, perhaps, and being able to paint a picture, not necessarily what's going on in Gaza at the moment, but a perspective nonetheless that people need to understand the nuance as we talk about the difficulties facing uh, any soldier that's out there fighting in a war in a foreign land and the difficulties that you have to face, not just to win the battle, but also for personal survival, because at the end of the day, anyone who goes to war expects to, well, that they're fighting dangerous, but at the same time, they're trained to be able to get back home. And that's what it means. And all we want, all of us, is just peace on earth. And it seems that we go the opposite way. We're going to take that break now, and we'll be back with more. You're watching and listening to TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media, like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Division Council and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? The government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at, and then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Today's News Talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back to the Jason Albong Show here on TNT Radio. It is the Saturday show, and I have to say, in the breaks, the movie previews that TNT Radio is able to put up, that one, Police State, they look fantastic. I hope you're taking notes and being able to catch up with those. Now, in this last hour of the show, I'm talking to ex-Australian military officer Peter Richards, 
and he's with me now. Peter, I wanted to talk to you about uh, life on the ground in Afghanistan, particularly as it pertains to dealing with terrorism, terrorists, and even in the form of child soldiers. How do you cope with that? Do you learn it on the ground or are you trained for it in advance? Well, you can never never really train for it in advance. Uh, guerrilla warfare, counterinsurgency warfare, counterterrorism type warfare, all has common threads. They work within the population and they will manipulate or coerce or threaten the local populace to work on that side when the local populace really has no uh, no other way of protecting their own lives they have to um they have to work with the enemy in that respect um especially when they're seen working with the coalition and a lot of people over there played both sides of the fence and purely out of survival um, and I'll give you a for instance where children were used um, would carry mobile phones and those mobile phones would be used to set off IEDs. Um, and, you know, having Western soldiers, um, you know, like myself or anybody else, it's very hard to look at a, to look at a child and want to take a shot at a child. It's not easy. To, it's not easy to do. And you've certainly got to start looking at your own SOPs and how you can avoid it because, um, this kid um, has probably been given, and in most cases were given money um, for the family or they were threatened or their family was threatened if this kid didn't do it for the Taliban, and that's the kind of tactics they used. Um, they would essentially uh, sit there and just be told to press a couple of buttons and, and then uh, blow up an IED. Uh, and most of the time when it first started to happen, um, we weren't aware of it. It certainly caught us off guard, uh, personally coming in off a target uh, one night we had some uh, a and that were with us, so Afghan National Army and some a &P, and they were blowing up um, and we brought them back on, in body bags. So, uh, and there was a child that was actually responsible for that. So we had to then look at our SAPs and if we saw a kid with a mobile phone straight away, that would be a combat indicator to us to then start to look around for where a possible ID is or a choke point and then we'd do our best to... Um, obviously dissuade that child or disarm that child as best we could. Um, the Taliban knew this. Uh, I also had friends that were caught up with um, Taliban using families as human shields, um, you know, and it's and a lot of those friends have actually taken their own lives because they were involved in things like that that they couldn't live with afterwards, especially when children were killed but they had no idea that there were children inside the compound. That's the kind of people that you're fighting, and Hamas is no different. They're using exactly the same tactics. You know, these tactics go back as far as Vietnam, you know, so it's it's not it's not unusual. It's certainly not different. But the local, you know, populations around the world, especially Western populations, they just have no idea or do not understand that culture. No, no, they're, they're, we, we don't, and that's the reason why the best way to understand what's going on is to get onto the ground. Now, Obviously, we want to talk about what's going on with Israel and Hamas. I, I want to, before we start, I just want to play a clip. And this is um, someone that you and I are not a fan of, and it's Yuval Harari. 
It's about six weeks ago. Now, Yuval Harari was considered to be an advisor to Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, but he made some statements that have now had the World Economic Forum actually distance themselves from the um, uh, the professor from, I think it's the Jer University of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. um, where, where he, he, he practices or teaches. They've distanced himself because one of the things he said was that there's no there's no more free will, humans are hackable, etc. And even for the World Economic Forum, who says all sorts of things, this one's a bit a bridge too far. But here he is, six weeks ago, telling us again, selling more fear. Let's play that clip now of Yuval Harari. Is in the greatest danger that we have been for years, and actually the entire region is in the greatest danger we have been for years. Uh, we could theoretically be just 24 hours away from a nuclear war uh, because there is a credible threat that Hezbollah and other Iranian allies will attack Israel with tens of thousands of missiles, in which case Israel could uh, defend itself with all the weapons it has, including nuclear capabilities. So this is a very dangerous moment. Now, Pete, how do you read that? Is Harari just selling more fear or is there a nuclear credible threat? Um, well, Israel, unless provoked to that point, and I would, it would take a lot to provoke them. I mean, okay, let's go back to history again. There's been three major conflicts in that area, starting in 1958 and finishing in 1972 with the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Israel was surrounded at that point, um, and in 1972, uh, they had the ability to wipe out every Arab state around them without without a doubt. Uh, they never did. They never went down that path. Um, and I would think that that wouldn't be the case. I mean, there's when you're looking at um, using nuclear weapons, you've got to look at what the follow-on effects to those weapons are. There are strategic nuclear weapons and then there are tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, going back to what you were talking about with the 155 shell, uh, there was um, artillery rounds back in the day that were actually nuclear-tipped. Uh, so, and, and the Americans and, and the Russians both experimented with them back during the Cold War. So for Israel to actually use um, a tactical nuclear weapon, there's a number of follow-on effects that would need to occur. Israel would need to be... Um, would need to be in a position where they're being invaded by every Arab force um, from all over the Arab world. Um, when I when I say that, all the neighbouring countries, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, um, then you're looking at uh, Lebanon and the list just goes on. And you would have to then have a combination of those to happen. Now, Saudi Arabia are not going to do that. They don't like Iran. They never have. Sheer and Sunni do not get along. Um, and the chances of them trying to coordinate an all-Arab attack again, like they've done the last three times, Israel is certainly prepared for that. Um, and I think it would stop well short of that uh, because the US would certainly get involved. Uh, where there is a danger, and this is the real danger, is where you've got traditional Russian allies, which is Syria. Uh, now, Russia in 72, and especially with the Golan Heights, sorry, after 67, my mistake, 
and the Golan Heights was taken, uh, Israel was going to go all the way to Damascus. Russia stepped in and said, don't do that. If you do, we get involved. And the US essentially said, no, don't do that. Stay out of it. Uh, and essentially that's why the Golan Heights, they only went as far as the Golan Heights. Uh, so for the... There would have to be a lot of a lot go wrong uh, for Israel to actually use tactical nuclear weapons, and the only way that they would do that would be they would use possibly that sort of weapon system, and it would be in the absolute extreme would probably be against somebody who's uh, pushing this proxy war, which would be Iran. Um, that, that's how I'd see it. That's that's very interesting. Mm. So. Yuval Harari obviously was just selling fear as he normally does. It's basically his job now. I don't know even how he even gets this publicity anymore. Now, playing out what we're seeing now, so we've got 16,000 people dead in, in Palestine or Gaza um, based on a retaliation for the 1,200 that were taken out on October 7. Many people are becoming intolerant of the, the coverage of seeing children being killed and attacked. Um from a from that perspective and, and and are just wearing thin in terms of supporting any war at all anymore what do you see as israel's end game in their approach at the moment it looks like they want to wipe gaza off the map but it's really because they want to wipe hamas off the map how does it play out do you see it well i'll go based on my own personal experience with that region uh, in 2005 i was there with the multinational force observers, which uh, basically look after the peace deal between Egypt and Israel. There were MFO observation posts all the way along the Gaza there and um, essentially on the Rafa connection with the border of Israel and Egypt. Um, I, as a security sergeant, I do tours up and down that border uh, and essentially uh, look at these sort of things and, and in 2005 there was a peace deal between the Palestinians and the Israelis and you know, I actually witnessed IDF removing um, settlers from that area at the time and they weren't going, they weren't very happy about going and it was their own army that was actually removing them. Now there was a, a, a place called the Spider Tower which, which is what we nicknamed it, uh, it's a massive observation post um, near Rafa. Uh, and essentially two months after that peace deal was struck and there was some sort of peace at that point, uh, the Hamas had uh, gained power, not legitimately by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and then they proceeded with tunnel work that they'd done under the Egyptian side of the border and into the Israeli um, part of the border, and there was an APC M113 APC, which is what the Australian Army's used for many, many years, 60 years actually. And uh, it's made of aluminium. We used, we used to say 18 crushed Coke cans. That's essentially what the, the width of the armour is side by side. Uh, and that was used as a vehicle to transport Israelis to change over in their observation post. Now, Hamas had uh, planted a massive bomb underneath where that APC parked every day and they blew it up two months later. Peace deal, gone. Mm. Now, Israel has historically given back a lot of the area that it's ever taken. Uh, and the issue is that um, it doesn't matter how much Israel does. The mantra of 
Islam, especially radical Islam, is to wipe Israel off the map. So Israel has no no reason to believe them ever again because historic values have always have always come back into play where they've only got to look and say, well, we, we've made peace with you at least three times and, you, and you've shattered that peace each time. Mm. That's fascinating because historic values is really where this current situation is headed. Now, just yesterday, we reported on what was going to be a protest uh, by what they call ultra-nationalist Israelis that were going to enter the site of the Temple of the Mount, uh, the, um, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is where the Dome of the Rock is, and technically that's the site of the First and Second Temple and where um, devout religious Israelis want to build the Third Temple. That's been the point. Now, if it goes back to historical values, etc., then it, I find it fascinating that we've just gone through here in Australia the whole idea of the voice and giving a voice to the what are now called First Nations people. It's like the third different name that we've given to the Aboriginal people in my lifetime as a collective, and that was rejected but it was argued soundly that um that this is a, a reason why the problem was that the, the 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 referendum change was was totally wrong it gave the power back to the government uh, because it was a um uh it was a voice that was non-binding which made no sense but at the same time people stood up for it because they thought it was the right thing to do but we're not necessarily seeing the same people standing up for israel and saying well they were here first historically and this argument but some people argue it and others want to go back like dr shiva and go well we're only going to go back 50 years and it was palestine's land that doesn't seem like a complete solution either so where what happens in that regard uh as we look forward to most of the world now agreeing, I mean, I find it fascinating that Biden can be fighting against uh, Putin via Ukraine, and yet both Biden and Putin agree on a two-state solution out of this current situation. Although Israel seems to be the only ones that aren't saying it, but are certainly not going on with a two-state solution. How do you think this all sort of comes together or even plays out? Well, again, People need to really remember history, and this is where the issues uh, are abound. Uh, Judaism is the oldest religion in that in that region, and the majority of people were uh, Jews. Uh, mm. The Romans persecuted the Jews at that point. Uh, Islam hadn't come around until sixteen hundred years after Judaism. Now, Islam essentially is a is a religion that is based on a warlord. Uh, when you look at the original texts of the Quran, it starts off peaceful. It goes, it almost goes in the opposite direction to what the Bible does with the New and, and Old Testaments, uh, where the Old Testament is very violent and the New Testament is rather more peaceful. Well, the Quran seems to go in the opposite direction, especially when you start to get into um, the Hadith or the, the extended books or the scholars' books, for a better word. Uh, they then talk about uh, Takiyah, and, and when you, you've only got to look at Hamas's flag and it's got the two swords, one sword is is for um, jihad and the other the other sword is for takiyah, which means essentially to lie to the infidel in order to gain your way in any way, shape or form. And in, in Arabic, that's what it actually means. So what they're traditionally doing is that they're saying one thing but meaning another, and it's all in the advancement of Islam. And... Islam, when you, you've only got to look at the Ottoman Empire and how ruthless, ruthless that was, um, and most of those places that claimed to be Arab initially or weren't Jews and that they were traditionally Islamic is actually a lie. 
It's it's it was never the case. Christianity was there long before um, before Islam, Islam was, and a lot of people were forced to convert. You became a slave under uh, under current Islam, or back in the day, uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, if you didn't convert, so you were classed as a substandard. Um, you weren't Islamic. You were a substandard human. You were beneath his people of Islamic faith. So Jews and Christians would have to live, and they'd have to pay a jizya. And and this is it's understanding the enemy and understanding the kind of people and the kind of theocracy that you're fighting. That's the problem with this region. You can have a two state solution, but one state is always going to want to wipe out the other one. And without religion being taken out of it, and coming back to your earlier. Um, comment about Indigenous First Nations people. It doesn't matter what religion you are, Jewish or Islamic, if you're born in that region, you're Indigenous to that region, regardless of religion. And that should be the focus. Not, you know, I, I know I met many, many um, Israeli Arabs. I spoke Arabic to them when I was when I was in Israel and in Jerusalem. Um, it's actually corrected on part of my speech about how I pronounced orange, Bortawan instead of Bortokali. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of the day, they were living in peace and they were Islamic and there's Christians living in in in, um, in Israel and they aren't treated as second-rate citizens. There's members of uh, who are Islamic that are in the Israeli parliament. So I don't understand the, um, the, the rhetoric from the other side saying that they're occupied land, so on and so forth. They're not. It's a, it's a complete fabrication. Yeah, well, it's uh, so much intricacy and detail that we we miss out on uh, that we don't quite understand because it's uh, it's about taking sides, and it's always always a case. Uh, it seems that that taking sides almost it, it, it involves a, a level of hatred. The um, the anti semitism that you see. Uh, in modern society today is uh, quite disappointing, but it's always been an undercurrent there in, at least in Australian society, as far as I've seen during uh, my lifetime and, and witnessed it firsthand, uh, can be quite shocking. And it's it, it's hard because in Australia, we have a tall poppy syndrome. And if somebody's seen to be standing up above that, of course, they're going to be cut down one way or another. It might be considered to be an overgeneralisation, uh, but at the same time, it does happen. I've seen it happen. What we'll do now is we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with more. You're watching and listening to TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. It's a truism that bears repeating, that everything the left says is either a lie or is based on a lie. Take, for example, the whopper that we need to eliminate beef cattle in order to save the planet from global warming. Even the University of California Davis knows how ridiculous this is. A report they recently issued says that laboratory-grown beef poses a 25 times greater threat to the environment than traditionally raised cattle. How can it be that we need to replace the pasture with the petri dish in light of this? Because facts don't matter to the left. They never let facts get in the way of pushing their agenda. And what is that agenda? It's control. As the godfather of globalism, Henry Kissinger said, who controls the food controls the people. That's what getting people to eat bugs is all about. That's what getting people to eat frankenmeat's all about. Control, not the environment. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying. 
by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. This is the last leg of the Jason Alborn show for this Saturday, and I'm here with Peter Richards. And we are talking about, first of all, we went through Ukraine and Russia, and then we've moved into Israel, Hamas via Afghanistan, and we're going to continue on a little bit more. Peter, how do you see, is it possible that the world can push a two-state solution, or is it just going to be a bridge too far? What are your reasons for your answer? Well, the two-state solution, if, if, if they're going to go down that path, um, especially with Israel looking after its own borders. Well, maybe they need to go back to the 67 borders uh, and the um, Palestinians are given a state, but then you have a demilitarised zone and much like North and South Korea, which with all intents and purposes has seemed to have worked, but then that's monitored by the international community. Now, there is something very similar to the North in Lebanon uh, and there are UN observers between... Uh, in Lebanon and Israel, um, and Israel. Uh, so that that is um, not a very big contingent, but it's there. Uh, but having a demilitarised zone, I think, would would um, certainly put a buffer there, and then that buffer becomes policed by the international community. Now, you can't have a government like Hamas. There is no possible way in the world that is ever going to work, and the Palestinians need to remove those sort of people. Mm -hmm. It's up to them. It's their responsibility. It's not the international communities. It's their responsibility to remove people like that. And Israel can't afford to have um, ultra, ultra uh, national. Sorry, ultra Jewish nationalists either, uh, because that's not going to work. Any any form of extreme is not going to work in that in that area. And so that needs to be addressed if you're going to have anything like a two state solution work. Now, uh, interesting, isn't it? Because you've got. Um uh, the idea that you need a demilitarised zone like North and South Korea to be able to get uh, anything through with such a small amount of land to play with. Uh, and at the same time, you've got uh, extremism, well, religious extremism at least, and idealism coming through to to hold it up. So if we move along a little bit, and, and the reason I do is that next year, obviously, we've got the US election, which may or may not happen. If you listen to Alex Jones on, on Tucker Carlson, he's providing good reasons why it won't happen because they don't dare even risk the possibility of Trump getting into power. But in the Trump days with the Abraham Accords and attempts at providing peace and acceptance of Israel in, in the region, do you see that next year is going to be a, an absolute nightmare before Trump gets in and then Trump can clean it up perhaps? Or how do you see next year playing out? And even if a, a Trump, a victory, what might change? Well, with respect to Trump, um, I think the US is going to have a lot of its own problems, especially internally, if um, if that election is seen to be fiddled with in any way, shape or form. Mm. And I'll stand by my my own convictions here that I reckon the last one was for sure. Mm. Um, you know, and if it looks like that's going to happen again, I think a lot of US citizens will lose um, faith in their own democracy. So I think there'll be a lot of internal strife uh, in the US if that occurs. If Trump does get in, I, I believe that he will push for something like that, whether he pushes for 
a demilitarised zone or he pushes for it you know, within that two-state solution. Um, really, how long's a piece of string? Uh, he'll have a number of other issues, I believe, will pop up before then. Uh, you've only got to see what's happening in North Korea and South Korea at the moment. Uh, Japan, because uh, South Korea's got a very right-wing government back in again, um, so they're certainly not um, adverse to taking on North Korea. Uh, he'll also have the issues of Japan and China, even though they've just signed a, a bilateral trade agreement again. China and Japan are still very much wary of each other. Uh, and certainly when it comes to joint Russian and China uh, exercises in the uh, China Sea and around Japan's sovereign waters, bordering sovereign waters. Plus, you've also had um, China uh, poking its nose in, in the Middle East as well in a lot of areas and in Africa. And Africa is, is a forgotten <laughs> a forgotten one in all of this. Um, there are a lot of things happening in Africa at the moment too, That um, and that all borders, you know, states like Egypt and so on that could really bring um, the Middle East undone. So with respect to um, Trump, I think he's going to have a lot on his plate, especially fixing up a lot of what Biden's done because uh, also... Biden has just just signed a bilateral agreement with China with respect to military technology and AI. Biggest mistake. Uh, I don't know why he's done that. Um, and it's probably because the Chinese have got a lot over him. So, yeah, a two-state solution, I think that'll be one of a myriad of things that Trump's going to have to deal with. It's just incredible to, th to think that, Biden could sign a bilateral agreement with China over military at the same time as forcing Australia into paying $360 billion to go into AUKUS to defend against China with the US. It seems that the uh, military industrial complex in the United States is just going all out to sign as many contracts as it possibly can um, to, to, to keep this, uh, this story going. And, and yet when we look at the Trump story, and the reason was that there were no new wars in the Trump four years in office. And you wonder if he is going to be the peacemaker in all of this. How can he solve the problems that are out there? But it just uh, it, it beggars belief that Biden could could sign such a deal. Where's Anthony Albanese in all of this? Is he just sitting there scratching his head, wondering, or is he just looking the other way and trying to avoid a COVID inquiry? Well, get him off a plane first. That'd be that'd be the first start, <laughs> and going somewhere. Look, if the Chinese offered Albanese a cheaper sub, he'd probably take it. Mm. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that Albanese has Australia's best interests at heart, especially when he's leasing off the Port of Darwin to the China, and China's just recently constructed two aircraft carriers. Now they don't have the same sort of aircraft carrier fleet as America, but at the end of the day, you don't build aircraft carriers unless you want to force project. And China has a lot of subs as well. Now. They've been shadowing a lot of uh, joint exercises, uh, AUKUS exercises and so on, uh, the Chinese Navy. So they're not silly. And, I mean, we've had Chinese frigates off our borders in the recent past. Al Anthony Albanese wouldn't know strategy if it hit him in the face. Mm -hmm. he's, um, he's not very clever in that respect. Uh, and he's, his strings are being pulled from somewhere for him to make ridiculous decisions like he's been making. Um my real worry uh, for the future is that the US gets into wars on two fronts. Now, you've got 
a very big industrial might and military might in the US. But to take on two war fronts, uh, and especially if you're going to take it on in the Middle East, where traditionally, and it's been shown and it's been proven historically, that guerrilla warfare or counterinsurgency type warfare um, is always going to cut you a thousand times. And in the end, you'll lose. And superpowers um, have been beaten that way in, in recent history. You know, China, Russia, and the US have all suffered. Uh, in that respect. Uh, so where where this goes, um, yeah, I don't envy President, you know, future President Trump, and I believe he will get in mm. uh, or bar something going very wrong. But the other issue that I that I see that could possibly put a dent in the US, um, US uh, election is uh, the recent announcement that there is a new virus going through China mm. with um, children and it affects children. Funnily enough, only not adults, but just children. Now, that's a bit sus in itself. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, they, the Chinese are going to fight things on multiple fronts, and they're certainly going to give the US more to worry about on multiple fronts. Uh, and they'll they'll practice the art of war, Sun Tzu, to the nth degree. There's no two ways about it. And and, and the point being that um, China. Along as we talked about with Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, um, want a multipolar world versus a, a, a unipolar superpower run by the United States. They talk about it often. Almost every second report out of China, when it's talking on a geopolitical level, uses the term hegemony to describe how America keeps pushing for its own unipolar uh, power. And it's saying, no, no, we don't want that at all. And one wonders, therefore, with China, if, if that spreading of the power is part of it, but seeing themselves at the top of that tree, um, but using perhaps Russia as its sort of military arm uh strong arm perhaps if that's the way they see it but then we also see division within india plays both sides of the fence india sort of pro us uh pro sort of china and um uh, and russia at the same time you've now got an interesting story out of which we haven't really had the time to talk about it but uh, argentina with javier malay the new president there basically saying we want nothing to do with brazil we don't do deal with deals with communists and he wants a us dollar and you wonder if he is the um uh, the entree to the uh to make argentina great again which is what trump's actual term was when he congratulated him to see if this is another part of this that perhaps we see this two-dimensionally as uh, as america as america but trump's america is not biden's america establishment america and trump's america are completely different things here so we almost got a third part of this triangle that you've got deep state establishment you've got independent um uh trump and then you've got the um the the chinese multipolar world here which i find fascinating the way it's playing out any thoughts on that well, I'd probably come as, as big as the UN. Um, I think the UN has run its course. I think a lot of people are starting to see that. I think yeah. what you're going to find is a lot of countries are going to go back to a nationalism-based government. Uh, we're already seeing it in Germany, uh, Poland, uh, Argentina, as you've just mentioned. Uh, definitely America will, will be going more nation, nationalistic and more uh, self-centric like they were under Trump. China is certainly looking after itself. Uh, Russia is also doing the same. So I think what you're going to find is that you're going to have a lot of these countries that um, would have had a traditional alliances via the UN 
and via the petrodollar, which was started in 72 with Nixon. Um, I think what you're going to find is that that's all going to fail, um, probably, you know, possibly within the next 18 months or so. Um, and uh, you're going to find a lot of countries are going to go back to either one aligning with maybe the BRICS, and there's already other, there's already talks of other nations like Saudi Arabia and so on joining that. Um, you, there's going to be a multipolar push, but I think a lot of that's going to be national based, nationalistic based, purely because a lot of countries are going to start looking after themselves as opposed to aligning themselves with with other countries. And and realistically, that's what, I mean, that's what we should be doing as well. You know, we, we should be looking at what serves Australians best. You know, we should have a, a far, far more uh, powerful military. Um, I, I'm actually in the belief that we should have a nuclear capability as well, um, purely because we have a lot of resources in this country. We have a lot of land and a lot of space. Um, we have a very, very small population compared to other um, nations around the world defensively. Um, to be able to protect ourselves, um, we need to have a big big stick and talk quietly, you know, diplomatically. It's uh, it's how other nations do it. And, I mean, if Pakistan and India and those sort of countries can have nuclear weapons, why can't we? You know, mm-hmm. and that's the way I see it. Um, you know, it, it's we're going to have nuclear subs. What's what's one what's one thing, one nation going further? How we use those, um, we use those as a deterrent. We don't use those as as a first strike weapon. So that's how I'd see it. But I don't believe Albanese has the uh, strategic um, nous to be able to see it that way, and his defence minister certainly doesn't either. Yeah, no, I, 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 agree, I agree with what you're saying, and um, I find it fascinating too that um, Australia is very good now at flip-flopping and having all these one-term prime ministers, but we still can't seem to see through the idea of the, uh, the uni party, Labor Liberal, and that seems to be the way that it flip-flops. But what's powerful now is that I can't see how people are going to throw Albanese out and then just vote the Liberal Nationals back in under Peter Dutton. It seems like something has to give. And we saw in New Zealand, of course, we've now got a triple coalition in that country, uh, but they they did anything they could to get rid of the current system. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a case now of sort of decentralising this political power at least and being able to get reasonable people in. Uh, But again, the problem is that... um, People, they know what they don't want, but they don't quite understand what they do. And it's very, very hard in a system that's protected by an establishment to be able to break through. So maybe it is that Australia goes once more by flipping back to the Liberal Party. And then after 2025's election, it'll be the downfall and the change. And finally, some true independence will be able to get in. What do you think? I think um, I think many people in Australia are sick, sick to death of the Uniparty. Um, you know, basically the, uh, the two wings of one bird being Liberal and Labor, mm. uh, they've had, you know, almost a century, uh, well, over a century now, I should say, mm. of uh, of governance in Australia and they haven't been able to get it right. On very few instances they have. Uh, we need a government in power that actually looks after the Australian people first and not international interests mm. and mm. Uh, big corporations' interests. Um, the, uh, the issues with... Um, like, and I see that with New Zealand. New Zealand's basically said, well, hang on, no, we need to look after ourselves nationally first. And I think that's what the New Zealand people have um, like. And I see that with New Zealand. New Zealand's basically said, well, hang on, no, we need to look after ourselves nationally first. And I think that's what the New Zealand people have woken up to. And I think COVID brought that out with a lot of nations. 
um, especially when you couldn't get a clear answer out of the Chinese. Um, mm. You certainly couldn't get a clear answer out of Fauci and his and his clowns. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, there were underhanded um, things that were going on during the COVID period and things that led up to that. Yep. No, absolutely. Now, yeah. we have reached the end of the show, Peter, and um, I, I want to thank you for your time today. It's uh, once again been enlightening uh, and it's terrific to be able to catch up. And I want to thank our viewers and our listeners who have been tuning into TNT. And I want to thank you again for today for being part of this first four-hour weekend show. Coming up after the break, the man known as the Aussie Cossack, Simeon Boykov, will be here to take you out for the rest of Saturday evening. This is Jason Olborn signing off now on TNT Radio.